Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Joe Genie. This is Ambassadors at Large. So we've managed to make it 15 episodes into this podcast and not talk about Ukraine yet. And that streak gets broken today because I'm delighted to welcome today's guest, Mark McNamee. He's an analyst at the Frontier Strategy Group. And like me, he has a master's in international affairs and international economics from the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. So uh, Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Joe. Glad to be chatting with you today. Uh, so, Mark, you you work for uh, for Frontier, although uh, although you're speaking today in a private capacity. Perhaps you could explain to our listeners a little bit about what you do on a daily basis, because it's really cool. Sure, absolutely, it is very cool. It's actually somewhat of a, a dream job, I'd guess you'd say. Um, so, I am the CE analyst at Frontier Strategy Group, uh, and just to remind the audience that I am speaking in a private capacity. Uh, this is not my views do not necessarily reflect reflect the views of uh, Frontier Strategy Group FSG. Um, so I am the CE analyst that is Central and Eastern Europe, uh, and on a daily basis, we are uh, my team is assisting multinationals, uh, typically Fortune 500 companies, with major investments um, in Central and Eastern Europe. We tend to focus mostly on Russia, the largest country in the region, of course, uh, but also the CIS countries and. Uh, Poland is our largest market in, in Central Europe, and and then of course, uh, as a whole, our firm assists multinationals globally in uh, all continents. So, um, we generally speaking provide uh, macro, political, and economic risk uh, advice, and based upon those macro, uh, political, and economic conditions, we provide uh, sort of more nuanced uh, business strategy uh, recommendations, uh, and this is going for six-month period, one-year period, so short-term as well as the medium to long-term, so, um, you know, the three- to five-year outlook as well, um, and so that's in a nutshell how we do it. We, we sort of take a 30,000-foot view of these markets and tell the clients how this will affect their operations and what they can be doing on the ground, you know, in the weeds um, to develop the most effective strategies to, um, you know, see their businesses be profitable. And this is what I mean. This is one of the things that's really interesting about political risk is that it kind of combines. It really shows how political things that are happening, uh, political events, can affect private markets and and the way that a country would. You know, if if a multinational corporation wants to invest in Ukraine, they have to consider what the, what's going on in Ukrainian Russian relations and and what. The outcome of the the disputed territory is going to be because that's going to heavily alter what they do. It, it, so that's one of the reasons why I wanted to invite you on today to sort of talk about what's going on in Ukraine right now and uh, and um, how much we should worry. I guess. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, it it is one of those things, and especially with our clients. I mean, these are major firms, so they're not just sort of testing markets. Let's make an investment here or there. I mean, they're they're putting in you know oftentimes billions of dollars, uh, and they're there for the long haul. So a lot of these firms. Um, they don't exactly have, uh, they're, they're, they're taking sort of the hundred year view more or less. So, you know, they see signs of, you know, recession this year or next year or some political instability. It's more about managing it than it is about saying, okay, just bought the resources and maybe we'll come back when, you know, the, the, the grass is a little bit greener. Um, and so it really gets into, well, then how do they, how do they sort of beat out the competition in these types of environments? So it's not about leaving. It's about, how do we become more effective um, for the long term? So it, it becomes very interesting, um, of course. And yeah, these major factors have a 
have a major impact on, on these investments, of course. So, so Ukraine is, is a, I mean, as someone who studies uh, nationalism and conflict management, Ukraine is a particularly interesting case for me. Just going back through a little bit of the recent history, uh, this is a country that's kind of, it's reductive to say it's split into an East and a West, but it kind of has this dual identity issue where you have a lot of, of Ukrainians who are Russian speaking uh, and kind of uh, identify themselves as as Russian, but are Ukrainian citizens. And they're mostly in the East. And then you have Ukrainian Ukrainians, if you will, who are mostly in the West. And for the last decade, power and the presidency has, has kind of shifted back and forth between one side and the other. And uh, in February of 2014, you had Viktor Yanukovych, who was from the party of the regions, who's mostly from the East, uh, in power. And he had just agreed to this this large trade deal with Russia and spurned the EU's proposed trade deal. And there were popular protests against this in the streets. People, the, the security forces opened fire. And then there was this mass popular mu- movement that basically pushed Yanukovych from power. And in response to this, uh, Russia seized the Crimean Peninsula, which is, was part of Ukraine. Uh, most people think it still is part of Ukraine. Um, <laughs> and then uh, and then helped uh, back separatists in the, the Donbass region, in the far east of the country. Uh, and this has been deeply destabilizing, to, to put it mildly. Uh, why do you think that Russia acted the way it did when it did? Sure. So uh, the when it did is is related directly to uh, the actions uh, with the overthrow of Yanukovych. So Yanukovych was overthrown, or he left, however you want to describe this, um, in on February twentieth, twenty first of twenty fourteen. Um, and with his departure, then it was obvious Ukraine was um, going in an uncertain direction, most likely west, of course, um, but most clearly that they were no longer going to sort of functioning as a somewhat of a vassal state uh, under you know tacit Kremlin control and that's very uh, very worrisome for Russia um, Russia and Putin's made numerous statements to this fact Russians continually um, and I mean historic for years have not looked at Ukraine as necessarily an independent sovereign nation but as sort of a, a little brother that should be grateful for Russia's domination over them Okay. Now, obviously, there's variations of opinion within Russia, but that's sort of historically been the uh, sort of the sentiment towards Ukraine. So this is seen as such, you know, betrayal of a younger brother to depart from from Russia. But more than that, sort of cultural and ethnic betrayal, um, it's really an issue of national security. And if anybody uh, anybody who knows anything about Russia, um, national security is is so central to their identity. Um, and and in not not in the way that we're sort of used to or comfortable with in say the U.S. or in, in Western Europe nowadays. Um, but so so Ukraine leaving it was it really poses um, to an extent an existential threat to Russia. So it's 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 very um, very threatening to Russian identity to to Russian political culture um, to see this country, which had been in de facto control controlled by Russia, and by the way. The origins of the current Russian regime, the the, the people of Rus, it began with the um, the principality in Kiev, and then moved to Moscow um, about a thousand years ago. Um, and so, losing this is really 
uh, it, it's almost as, you know, it's not a dagger to the heart, but it's almost as if cutting off, you know, your right arm in a way. You're not going to die, but it's extremely destabilizing, very threatening to, to Russia. And so, so to get, sorry. Mm -hmm. It kind of reminds me of the Serbs with Kosovo, where it was like the the population demographics have turned against Serbia uh, in Kosovo and, and the, the center of the state had moved, but but the identity of the state was very tied up in this particular region, and the loss of it is just so, there's there's a tremendous amount of loss aversion going into the political thinking of of leaders in Moscow on this. Precisely, exactly, yeah, and the, and that might be an apt comparison. Um, and so, so to get to you, to answer your more direct question, um, they they sort of invaded at the time because losing Ukraine. That that's not a that's not a comfortable prospect for them. So that that was sort of the impetus and why they went at the time they did. Um, but in in actuality, the the real um, the real issues, and as you mentioned, you said they they sort of um, you know Russian backed this separatist movement in the east. It's not entirely accurate. I, I would actually flip it on its head and say um, this was more Russian led and then backed by uh, sort of enough opportunists in the region. To then uh, to bring about the the war that then transpired, uh, you know, middle of 2014 and towards the end of 2014. Um, so that sort of answers the question as to, I guess, when it occurred and why it occurred. This is one of the things that interests me is is that. Uh, the- those who have listened to this podcast a lot know that I'll, I'll often draw on the, the, this re- the, the work of Paul Collier about how rebellions happen where they can. And you could argue, I mean, Ukraine is a, you know, it, it, it's it's not Central African Republic. It has a state. That state might ha- suffer from corruption problems and, and various other things, but it, but it is a state. It would not be a, a, a state where a rebellion could happen on its own. The, gov- the writ of the government extends throughout the country. What Russia's actions did, it seemed like they, they made possible a rebellion that would have happened anyway, if it could, but only, only because it could, in effect. It, 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 they gave the space for these guys, but it seemed like, the, like there are people in the East who really did want to do this. Uh, perhaps you could talk a little bit about that, because this, is, this gets to one of these big questions, which is, was this a popular, did, did people in the Donbass really, had they had enough of, of, of Kiev, and, and did they hate the, the direction that this was going? Was this really a, an ethnotized thing? Or was this just a few elites who were pissed off because their guy had just been pushed out of power? Right. No, I hear you. It's a good question. There's about 10 questions in there. So I'll try, I'll try to keep this as coherent as possible. But um, So yes, arguably there would have been a rebellion. And there was, to an extent, a rebellion. That it got as militarized as it was and, and as effective as it was in gaining that much territory, um, that could only have occurred with Russian support. And likewise, the calming down of of the war could really only occur because of Russian demands that it would calm down um, at this point. So it, it really shows the uh, the effective nature of Russia's control over the situation, whether to ramp it up or to decrease hostilities. Um, but more to the point, and, and it, this is where it gets very interesting. So the because in the in the popular press and, and what Putin always harks on is is sort of this ethno linguistic issue defending these. Russian minorities, these Russian speakers. And now it is true, of course, there is very large Russian populations, uh, lots of dual citizens, lots of exclusively Russian speaking um, 
uh, individuals in this region and in the Donbass, so in Donetsk and Luhansk, down into Crimea, of course, and, and all along the south, towards all the way towards Odessa and the border with Moldova. Um, so that that is valid. However, what's extremely interesting is that in reality, this war was not this was not an ethnic link. Uh, it was not an ethnic conflict. Um, you you can actually and there's been fabulous reports of this. You can actually look at maps and you can see where the most destabilization was. So where were the protests initially? Where did armed conflict initially begin? Where were the biggest battles, the highest levels of hostility? And it doesn't coincide very cleanly at all with the ethnic dimensions in the Donbass. Um, what it, where it does, though, um, what it does happen to coincide with much better is with the economic differences. So in the, in the Donbass, the, the economy is really made up of manufacturing, um, really machine building, uh, you know, tractors and lorries and farm machinery equipment that gets traded with Russia primarily. Um, very uncompetitive products glo- uh, globally, but um, products that have been traded with Russia, you know, obviously historically, you know, from long, long pre-existing trade um, linkages. <clears throat> and then you have a lot of mining, of course, and then you have a, a very large metals industry. And what you actually find is that the industries that basically were better linked with Russia, that of course, with the Maidan, with the turning of the country towards the West, where these individuals, these whole sectors of the economy were going to be major losers, that's where the violence started to take place. And if you go to the other areas that were based more on, say, um, the mining sector, um, that wasn't going to lose quite as much since they could be selling a lot of a lot of these minerals into the EU and would benefit in some ways from uh, from the new trade agreement that would be coming with the EU. At the same time, there were a good amount of mining towns that, that did side with the rebels because with the IMF austerity coming, a lot of these uh, mines would be closed and would, would suffer because of the, the lack of the subsidies that they had enjoyed under the Yanukovych regime. Um, and then the third sector is the, uh, the metals industry, which was going to, generally speaking, much more benefit from the open trade uh, and opening up a new market to, towards the EU. So you can really see where um, the conflict and the hostilities were based upon the economic differences as opposed to the ethnic linguistic differences. And that's really an interesting point because it, it gets into some of the, the historic issues too. Everybody sort of saw this as a, uh, I guess, an ethnic and nationalistic movement of Ukraine against, against Russia. Really, this was a sort of a, to put it better, sort of a modernist versus Soviet uh, conflict. So a lot yeah, of it, it, almost, it almost sounds like a protectionist racket, the way you describe it, that, that it's literally just uncompetitive industries. Is, and the Soviet Union was a phenomenally large protectionist racket. Um, and, and that's exactly what it, what it was. So the machine building, the defense sector, the high amount of trade um, and reliance on Russian demand. Those types of those types of uh, those workers now are going to be out of jobs, and they're going to be the losers in the new economic and political environment. And so they're the ones who then rebelled, um, and so so this has more to do with sort of you know in the Soviet period, the, all these these individuals I'm mentioning, you know the miners, the 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 factory workers, these laborers, they were glorified in the Soviet Union. They were you know the, these were the heroes of the Soviet period, right? I mean they they're the ones who built the nation. They're the heart and soul of the nation. Um, and they lose that identity when you start shifting into a more modernist um, political economy, akin to something that you know in Western Europe and what Europe is, what uh, Ukraine is trying to um, to achieve now. So 
they could see, you know, so the, the shift sort of from the Soviet period into this period, there's me clear, distinct winners and losers, and the losers were rebelling. And the losers, it was not um, aligned specifically with the ethnic Russians in the region. Now, how much, is it, looking at this from Moscow's perspective, how much of their action was that they were protecting their economic relationship with Ukraine, as you've described, and how much of it was a national security thing? And it could be, it could, it could be both. A lot of times, bad decisions get made because of like five reasons that don't stand up each on their under their own scrutiny, but together sure. become a compelling reason. Uh, sure. But. I mean, this wasn't the first time that that Russia had done this sort of thing. It was the first time that they annexed territory in a very long time. That was quite shocking. But mm-hmm. but we'd seen this before in Moldova, and we'd seen this before eerily fam- in an eerily familiar sort of pre-run of this in Georgia in 2008. And the thing that Russia that that Ukraine and Georgia both had had in common was that they were both being talked about as potential candidates for NATO, and. For Russia, I mean, just looking at a map, the idea that these two countries in particular—I mean, it's 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 almost the very definition of encirclement—and uh, so the idea that Russia would act pre- preemptively to basically undermine the territorial integrity of both countries to make it impossible for them to join NATO because it would be so uh, so provocative if they did. It, that, that seems to sort of make sense. But which one of these things would you? I mean. Was there one that really drove the decision here? To me, I've always thought of it as 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 a, a let's stop NATO from expanding thing. But the economic relationships are important as well. Sure, and economic relationships uh, are important, of course. But um, but no, your your intuition is is definitely correct. This is far more political and national security than it was economic. Uh, and proof of that is that Transnistria, for example, in Moldova, or South Ossetia and Abkhazia in Georgia have next to no economic value for for uh, for Russia um, in Moldova and Georgia as a whole have very little economic value um, and, and and no and like almost no people too I think South Ossetia <laughs> has like 60,000 people so so when the right. shelling started and, and like a couple thousand people had been killed Russia was Russia accused Georgia of genocide they said you you just wiped out you know four <laughs> percent of the population in this place because it's so right. small uh, it's, so it's it's really just to 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 take away the the territorial integrity and the stability of the country, precisely, exactly, and and a lot of this start, we see we saw the same method as well in Ukraine, in Georgia. Um, prior to the war, they're giving Russian citizenship um, to people in Abkhazia, people in South Ossetia, in order to just extend their reach. And in Ukraine, that already existed. There's lots of dual citizens, um, people crossing the border for economic reasons, people with families on both sides of the border, etc. So it gives them the pretext, at least, to to uh, invade as they did. But uh, but to, to get back to the, the question, um, no, it wasn't really about economics. Um, there is a greater trade relationship with Ukraine, slightly more dependencies, uh, the, a decent amount of uh, the def- of defense. Um, uh, investments are in Ukraine, so that has had a minimal effect, but next to nothing. That, that the economics wasn't wasn't driving the decision. It, this was really uh, almost exclusively political and security, um, and in particular, it, it was about NATO encroachment. That's their fear, um, and by basically doing this, by taking the Donbass, that then by definition um, precludes Ukraine from joining NATO and or 
the EU since they would be um, they would have territorial uh, issues within the country. So there there would be um, you know this this fragment sitting there that doesn't agree on its future and doesn't necessarily want to be going to EU or NATO. And so as a result, Russia is able to accomplish their political goal of keeping out a neighbor on their border um, from NATO, which could potentially, you know, one day, who knows, could host nuclear weapons, which would be about five minutes from Moscow. So that's their fear at the end of the day, and this is how they would avoid it. Um, Now they're in the process of trying to, um, which was really the purpose of the war, the political tool to um, gain leverage over Kiev's future. Right, so seizing territory in the Donbass—that um, in itself was never the goal. It actually has proven to be uh, a huge drain on Russian resources, and part of the reason they're trying to seek a way out if they can now. It looks like, um, but at, at the end of the day, what they're trying to do is get something enshrined in the new constitution that gives special status, some vague level of autonomy um, that effectively gives this region veto power over various decisions for Ukraine's future, which in effect then would give Kremlin political control over the direction of, of Ukraine. Yeah. And, and this is sort of the, I mean, they, they don't have, they have economic leverage, particularly in, in the form of, of, of natural gas and oil over Ukraine, but they don't have, I mean, they just don't have as good a package to offer as the Europeans do. And it seems like this is their way of overcoming that by basically making a Making an offer that they that can't be refused. Can't refuse. as it yeah, were. And that's a good analogy because that they do they function uh, as Russia's. They use you know uh, arm twisting and blackmail. Uh, it's like a classic mafia movie um, to to try to coer. I mean, and they use coercion in order to retain these territories on the periphery for the purposes of national security. Um, and that's not a very appealing. Uh, <laughs> it's not a very uh, you know appealing method to uh, keep neighbors in your fold when, you know, as an antithesis to that, you have a European model that is obviously based upon very different, much more respectful um, rules of engagement, if you will. Now, uh, Moscow's actions were largely dictated by national security reasons and and sort of historical dominance reasons. And the, the Ukrainians in the East who revolted were largely doing it for economic reasons and because they were about to lose out on the, the, the new sort of political and economic order that was likely to happen in a post-Yanukovych uh, yeah. Ukraine. This didn't start off then as, as a nationalist thing, but it's undeniable that it has had that effect, especially with, with Moscow playing this sort of we're protecting ethnic Russians card. In so mm-hmm. doing it, it kind of makes Russian identity, the Russian language a threat to the Ukrainian state. And we've definitely seen nationalism on the rise in Ukraine. What are, what are some of the dynamics? Cause this can get really toxic really quickly. I mean, you've you, the, the, the natural, and when you, you look at something like the Balkans, the Balkan wars in the nineties, where this kind of action, the logic of this action led itself to ethnic cleansing. And you know that the, that the Russians are thinking this way because RT and Pravda keep writing articles saying 
the Ukrainian, you know, fascist nationalists are are conducting ethnic cleansing now, whether or not right. that's actually happening. But that it does have the potential to go that way. What's the sort of long term dynamic? Do you do you think of of a conflict like this? Is it going to become more difficult to be Russian speaking and Russian identifying in Ukraine as a result of this, or have they largely shied away from the the the, the sort of homeland nationalist path? No. Yeah. Right. So I. Uh, I'm. I have very little fear that this goes down a, a more or less genocidal route, uh, as, as you mentioned. Um, and, and there's really very, very little evidence of this. There, yes, there are the Pravi sector, the right sector. Um, there are some extremist groups there. Yes, that's valid. But um, wholesale attacks on Russian speakers or anything of that nature. Or there's Russian speakers throughout the entire country. Um, it's. It. This is just simply not an issue uh, that's come up. There's a, there's a famous story from uh, the Ministry of Finance in Ukraine, and a um, uh, basically a, an ethnic Russian working in the Ministry of Finance about six months ago um, had voiced concerns about discrimination in the workplace and and uh, worried about you know Russians being sidelined amidst this you know Ukraine this Ukrainian nationalistic fervor, um, and the ministry the Minister of Finance uh, Natalia Yuresko, who's a, U, uh, a U.S. Ukrainian citizen um, who left working in the U.S. government to take over the Ministry of Finance in Ukraine has done a wonderful job. She called together a meeting, and everybody's in this meeting. There's about 100-some people, and she said, what language are we all speaking in right now? And everybody responded back, Russian. And she goes, okay, thanks. That's the end of our discrimination meeting. So uh, it, it, it goes, <laughs> I mean, they're all speaking the entire, they're all speaking Russian. I mean, all this is the this is the language of the elites. This is what the language these people all grew up on. Nearly every single Ukrainian you would ever meet, the most nationalist Ukrainian, is gonna know is gonna be fluent in Russian by and large, with some exceptions, of course. Um, I mean, I, I've been in Ukraine. I was in the south and eastern parts um, years ago, and the only language spoken was Russian. I, I never actually ended up hearing Ukrainian, um, but nonetheless, this the ethnic linguistic issue is. Um, really not not much of a, of a problem. Um, and so, anyhow, going forward, I, I, I'm definitely not particularly concerned about uh, what the Russians have been sort of making up with these, you know, right-wing fascist groups. Um, and more to the point, uh, there's been such a, um, unlike some of the, you know, the cases of the Balkans, um, there's been such an embrace of modern Western European values. Um, you know, yes, they have, they're very uh, hostile towards... Uh, sort of the Russian government right now, but they are, there's such respect for rule of law and, you know, transparency and fighting corruption, um, you know, living in a country of, of, you know, numerous nationalities and religion and openness and, um, and just all of these modern Western European values that we're used to, and they're trying to uh, ascend to this and, and achieve that. And that's a, that's a part of it. Um, so, right, I mean, some of these fears which, some of the, which we've seen play out uh, in other places, uh, even in Europe, in relatively recent history, I, I really don't see that uh, sort of erupting in Ukraine. But to the, the bigger point um, is that nationalism, though, has strengthened very, very significantly. And there's just been a major shift in political culture uh, in the country. And, and that's really been affected uh, by Vladimir Putin's actions. Um, by, you know, it's, it, it, it's kind of how it always works historically. You know, you, you find an antithetical character. There's nothing that binds and unites people other than that. So he's come in and 
in trying to stamp out this new Ukrainian direction, this new Ukrainian political culture. He's actually really solidified it for uh, probably about the next two, three generations for, for decades now. This really, I mean, it, it, a lot of people in, in the immediate aftermath of the Ukraine crisis said, you know, the United States should do more, NATO should do more, why is Russia being allowed to get away with this? But in, in many ways, uh, Russia really punished itself on this one. Like, the the, the, the act of, t- of seizing territory from a place nearly always turns into this nationalist backlash. And, and the long-term ramifications, I mean, it kind of reminds me of... of uh, when when Russia occupied uh, you know, invaded Hungary in fifty six and Czechoslovakia in sixty eight, in the short term, militarily, the West did not do anything. But they, right. they they sort of didn't have to. I mean, a they didn't want to risk World War Three, but b they didn't have to. the long term ramifications of that were just the loss of 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 status and, and and idealism for for global communism around the world. Like it just after particularly after Czechoslovakia in sixty eight, there was just no way to to justify the idea that communism could be accomplished by anything other than than brute force and fear and terror and imperialism and. Uh, like the the long term cost of these sort of things is is really high. It's difficult to imagine. I mean, it's interesting to see how uh, the politics in Kiev will go, but it's really difficult to imagine a government in Kiev aligning itself more with with Moscow anytime soon after such a flagrant violation of Ukraine sovereignty. Absolutely, I yeah I couldn't agree more. And and proof of that is the fact that the economy has. I mean, if it fell by, we'll see for twenty fifteen, but. 10 to 12 percent this year it'll stagnate maybe grow by one or two percent uh 2014 obviously it it declined by about six percent if i remember correctly um i mean this is a long-term issue now i mean the economy is not recovering yet you i mean there's polls showing over and over i mean the people are willing to live under sort of these difficult conditions for the medium term for you know quite some time they're able to bear that now, which obviously, if you had these types of conditions in the UK or in the US, you'd have protests. You'd have protests in the streets, you know, you know, watching living standards fall like this, you know, a long time ago. But they're willing to live with that um, precisely because of Russia's actions. I mean, and now it's what they will not live with is a government that would once again behave like the old Ukrainian government or like the Russian government. So if they don't get the, the they don't see improvements in rule of law and transparency and the the fight uh, against corruption, that's what they can't live with now. Which is really, I mean, that shows such a clear change in political culture. Um, they're willing to sacrifice living standards in order to basically become more European and see their country their country function like a normal Western European nation. And and ultimately, it's about fighting corruption. Um, and so that it's absolutely it's total proof. Exactly what you're saying. Um, yeah. So, so let's yeah let's talk a, l- a little bit briefly about about the economy. U- Ukraine, as I mean, in general, a frozen conflict and and an uncertain uncertainty and war are just not really good for the economy. And and U- Ukraine's economy dipped dramatically these last couple of years. You're, it it looks like it might be stabilizing, but it, it's it's not going to be a booming economy anytime you know in the next couple three years by the looks of it. Uh, what effect? I mean, f- and Russia is struggling as well. Well, starting with Ukraine, U- Ukraine has this. It has a lot. I mean, it's dependent in part upon Western aid. 
It needs economic reforms. It's trying to go through. Uh, it, it, there may be changes in the constitution coming. There's and then there's also a three billion dollar loan that that Russia gave to Ukraine back in 2013 as sort of an, a reward for Yanukovych choosing Russia's package over the EU's package. And the Russians now want this back. And and it was supposed to come due in December. And Ukraine was just like no, we're not going to pay this. You've taken part of our territory. Um, perhaps you could talk a little bit about where things stand with that, where Ukraine has a lot of debt issues and and a number of other issues in terms of economic reforms, corruption, et cetera. Right, yeah. So, I mean, overall, as a general assessment, um, there, there have been some setbacks. Things haven't been as fast as people would have wanted, um, but they've gotten through the major hurdles and they've made tremendous progress uh, when all is said and done since the revolution. I mean, you have to consider how, how bad things had fallen apart uh, with the revolution than with the war. Um, the Krivnia losing its value uh, over the last year and a half. So uh, all those factors, considering where they started from, they've actually made tremendous progress. Uh, 2015 was really the sort of the bellwether uh, year, and they got through that um, about as best as they could have hoped for. Um, obviously, they had the war in the East. That, that stabilized as of February of last year. Uh, it's been basically calm and it looks like it should remain calm uh for the future um which yes it'll end up being sort of a frozen conflict but at the same time that's not necessarily good but it's better than what it could have been um so a frozen conflict is actually a uh that's an acceptable outcome at this point um not as much government spending defense spending towards towards the east now so that that helps out the situation you know they can take that spending and put it elsewhere in the economy um and then the other the other big issues were uh, getting a debt deal last uh, last summer, which they got successfully. Uh, it wasn't the ultimate greatest debt deal in the world, but it settled the problems uh, as much as they need them for the time being. Um, and so that was, and that was a very tenuous thing. It was unclear how that was going to be resolved. Um, and fortunately, it, it, it was resolved in a fairly optimal way, I'd say. Um, they passed a very responsible uh, IMF-endorsed budget uh, in December. Um, and so, and, and these moves in particular... Um, then each step along the way, as, as well as lots and lots of, uh, of reforms, um, you know, in, in terms of, uh, you know, reforming up the, the energy sector. So you're, there's less opportunities for corruption now, um, numerous other reforms in the, uh, in the anti-corruption, creating an anti-corruption department, um, different things with rule of law and, uh. Uh, all, all sorts of economic reforms to improve the, the business environment um, and, and these things. So that, that unlocked IMF money, U.S. money, EU money, Switzerland, Poland, Japan, and numerous countries have given money now uh, as they've gradually proven that they are moving in this Western direction. So um, so then that stabilized the currency, that improved their currency reserves, um, which were at drastically low levels a year and a half ago, and now they're at fairly sufficient uh, levels at, at the uh, as of when we're speaking right now, so um, so they've made a lot of progress on on those fronts, and that's very encouraging for the future. The, the three billion bond, uh, three billion dollar bond that you mentioned, really um, really was Putin's way of trying to bribe the Yanukovych regime to stay in his orbit. Um, it did work because they did take the bond, um, and now this current government has to pay it. Um, Fortunately, the IMF, uh, this was uh, an up-in-the-air, kind of a, uh, a really tenuous situation back last fall, uh, fall of 2015. But uh, the IMF then finally, before the bond was due in December, said effectively to Ukraine, no problem, 
default on the bond. Don't pay Russia. They've invaded you. We're not going to have. We're not going to hand you money so that you can go then hand it to Vladimir Putin. So default of the bond, we'll still support you, um, and that should settle markets. And it did. So when the when the bond payment was due, they didn't pay it, and nothing happened to the hryvnia. It still remained stable. It, it, so it, it, it uh, was it was a bit of chutzpah uh, on the part of of, uh, of Putin to say uh, after invading and annexing territory right. to be like you have to pay back. You can't default on that bond. That's illegal. So that. And that's, that's the irony. It, it's beautiful. I mean, what these countries try to do suddenly becomes a stalwart of rule of law and the legalistic implications of this uh, when, you know, he's happy to throw a rule of law out the window the other 364 days of the year, of course. But uh, but when it came to this, yeah, he was the, the champion of, uh, you know, his legal rights uh, and, and Ukraine's obligations uh, after, of course, invading, which amazingly, uh, uh, about a week before the bond was due, he actually, and it, it seems that he slipped, he... Uh, he effectively admitted that there were, in fact, Russian soldiers running things in the Donbass, which he had denied for the previous year and a half, uh, you know, quite strongly. And then suddenly he had, had admitted it, which is actually fairly damning because when they do try to go to court, it's the easiest thing in the world for that for Ukraine then to, to play this tape back and say even their president has admitted that they, in fact, have Russian soldiers in, in southeastern Ukraine. So kind of shoots himself in the foot there. They are still trying to work out a, a, a debt deal uh, over the over the three billion, um, all the same. But uh, it, it happens. So, like, I'm looking out my window right now, and w- DC just got hit with one of the biggest blizzards in a hundred years, and there's about two two and a half feet of snow out there. It's midwinter, and this reminds me that even now, Russia and Ukraine are going to be kind of economically locked together in to a certain extent it's it's not like ukraine is just going to shift over to the european orbit completely and there will just be no relations with russia because there's the whole issue and it seems to come up every winter whenever uh, uh, whenever uh, non yanukovych is in power uh of the heating oil right. ukraine gets most of its heating oil from from russia and the eu gets a lot as well and uh how much they pay for that is is going to be a sort of long-standing issue. And these, this sort of thing, I mean, they're going to have to continue to deal with each other even after this, and even with this frozen conflict that's probably going to be stretching out for some time. Um, maybe not. That's, that's actually one of the really interesting implications that's, that's arisen recently. The uh, Ukraine's energy, independ- energy dependence on Russia has drastically fallen. And actually, this winter, it, it appears that they very well could get through the winter without importing any Russian gas. And this is really novel. Last year, they, were, they got a deal and they were able to get, they were able to import energy and they got through the winter okay. Um, there was questions on this winter if they'd be able to get through it and it looks like they will. Uh, it'll be close. We'll see in, in late February. Um, but that whole energy relationship, the um, sort of Russia's tool of control over Ukraine um, and several countries in Eastern Europe for that matter, uh, has really diminished. So uh, basically, for about the last two years now, uh, Ukraine's done a fabulous job of being able to get in re-exports of um, of gas into Ukraine from Poland and Slovakia and and Central Europe. So actually, that energy dependence issue is not there as much. Um, and aside from energy, um, the there's been these big trade embargoes. Uh, some. Uh, explicit, others implicit uh, along the border of, of Russia and Ukraine. 
and that's that's been there really since about the day Yanukovych left power. Um, so trade has been uh, redirected and reoriented. Um, they haven't been benefiting really uh, the economy from Russian trade, and Russia now is is putting an embargo on uh, Ukraine has put a counter embargo on Russian goods coming into the country, and Russia is not allowing uh, Ukraine to export goods to the region, so into the Caucasus and into Central Asia, uh, which R- isn't... R- sorry. R- R- yeah, R- Russia, Russia's economy has also suffered and will decline again this year, most likely. Now, that these embargoes aren't helping, and the sanctions put in, in place against Russia after, after its intervention are not helping either. But this is right. mostly an oil thing, right? Because oil exactly. is, has, has tumbled to such a low level that basically all of the, the petroleum... Uh, producing countries are hurting right exactly this is primarily oil um i mean you know russia gets it's about uh 25 to 33 percent of their gdp is based off of energy uh 50 percent of government revenues uh about i think it's two-thirds to three-quarters of uh of energy of their export revenues so their foreign exchange reserves are based off of the energy sector so um it's really uh really a, a dagger at in their in their back. I mean, you have to think uh, before the Ukraine crisis, and this is one of the, the benefits of Ukraine doing this sort of revolution. The timing couldn't have been better for them. Uh, this is exactly when Russia became hamstrung. The oil prices, you know, you're going back to about uh, summer of 2014, and oil prices were well over $100 and had been for years. And then they start declining, and then they took the big fall in November, December of 2014, and they've remained there, and then they've taken a subsequent fall down from the average, oil prices averaging about $50, $55 a barrel in 2015. And now they're about, as of today, they're about $32 a barrel, fell to about $27 a barrel early, earlier this week. Um, and projections for oil this year now are much lower than uh, a lot of firms, including ours, uh, had anticipated. So it looks like it'll be about maybe $30, $35 uh, averaging this year. So it's just and and here comes disastrous. Iranian oil too, right? And, and well, that's that's that, that's the thing. You have <clears throat> things like that coming on board. You have China slowing down, less demand. You have even greater supply with Iran, uh, and so all the fundamentals. It's just all the everything's downward pressure on the future price of oil. And so yeah, it's it's a it's a huge dagger in into Russia's Russia's economy. They fell by about. Uh, we'll see. At the end, we'll see in a couple of weeks, but close to four percent this past year. Um, and with oil, if it's going to be at thirty, thirty-five dollars, who knows? Maybe low, lower. We'll see. But um, the economy will decline again this year, maybe one to two percent. So um, it, it gives them obviously much, much less maneuverability in these foreign policy ventures that they've undertaken, and, and in particular in Ukraine. Mark McNamee, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been a, a really sort of illuminating look into Ukraine's sort of recent past, present, and and future. Uh, it really does seem like the possibility is there for stability and even in the long term uh, economic growth without having territorial integrity. Because this the frozen conflict look like, looks like it's going to be sticking around for some time, but uh, it's possible that Ukraine rump Ukraine, if you will, can continue to function anyway. Absolutely. And we're, I'm very hopeful. I mean, I look at it now, all the issues we discussed, at the end of the day, it looks like the onus now is on the central government. Can they function? Can they turn them towards Europe? And primarily, most of all, the central issue is, can they address corruption in the near future, in the next six months, and make very big gains against corruption? Because if they don't, then that sets the stage for another Maidan. 
Once again, Mark McNamee is a uh, an analyst at the Frontier Strategy Group. Mark, thank you uh, once again for coming on the show, and we hope to have you back soon. Wonderful. Thanks a lot, Joe. It was a pleasure. Indeed. You can find the podcast online at joegenie.com slash podcast. That's J-O-E-G-E-N-I dot com slash podcast. And you can subscribe for free in the iTunes store by searching for Ambassadors at Large. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Bye-bye.